Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Jaws is absolutely one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie. Uh, I do watch it every single year, at least one time. Uh, It's a great summer movie, right? I'm glad we could do this during the summer where you get it in. Um, And and genuinely, there is something to learn uh, as a writer with every viewing of it. Uh, So I'm thrilled to have our guests here today. Um, We'll talk about how Jaws is a perfect engine later. That all it does is swim and eat. It's a story machine. Uh, There are no extra scenes in it. Uh, there's humor, there's character, there's drama, there's pathos, uh, there's danger and excitement. Um, and we'll talk about all of this stuff and how it came to be. Um, but let's get right to it. Please welcome our guests, the screenwriter of Jaws, Carl Gottlieb, and Jaws enthusiast, Paul F. Tompkins. Carl, so Carl is the author of the Jaws Log, which uh, have you read this, Paul? Oh yeah, ask you that yes, all week. <laughs> um, which uh, is a an, an actual diary kept during, or it's taken from actual diaries kept during the shooting of Jaws. Is that correct, Carl? Uh oh, first no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just recollections, but it was it's no, no, fairly what, immediate, what, right? What, what happened was the the winter of uh, seventy four, seventy five, after the picture was finished shooting in post-production, uh, kind of currently, as they were making promotion plans for the release of the film like they always do, there was a, an idea that they would do a, uh, a kind of a three-parter about the making of the movies. Anik and Brown would write from the producer's viewpoint, eventually would write from the novelist's viewpoint, and Spielberg would write from the director's viewpoint, and Stephen asked me if I would ghostwrite his section of the book. <laughs> He was very busy prepping, prepping Close Encounters. So um, I said, sure. And I didn't think anything about it. And then about March, February, March of 75, they said, oh, nobody else can do their third, so do you mind <laughs> doing, doing the whole book? Well, this, you know... Fortunately, everything was fresh in my memory. It was, you know, no, nothing was older than nine months because, you know, the, that was the gestation period of the movie. Um, and I, I had all the memories, and I had my, you know, my script notes and, and uh, what I didn't know, you know, stuff that happened while I was off the island or stuff that happened in pre-pre-production uh, before I came on the movie. Everybody was around. I could go interview them and, you know, take notes and, you know, just be a regular journalist, which was one of the things I trained for in life. Uh, and th- so that's what I did. And then I went away to a fat farm <laughs> and uh, spent, you know, th- three weeks on, you know, kale and tofu uh, and, and and writing the book. And, and, and then, and then uh, this was before studio... Um, uh, one, you know, all-encompassing deals 
where they would, you know, pay you a flat rate, as, and you would. The, nobody had any time to do anything, so they said, "Well, why don't you, oh, you know, make, make your make your own deal for for publishing? You know, just uh, uh, you know, one of our executives here was at Dell. You could probably they'll they'll, they'll do a deal with you." And luckily for me, my cousin was a hotshot New York big-time publisher. And so he advised me and my agent about what I should ask for. So I got a regular book contract with a regular, you know, decent royalty rate. And, of course, the movie came out. The book was issued two weeks later and reviewed in the New York Times. There were two books about the making of the movie, me and somebody, a local from the Vineyard, who was a journalist on the Vineyard Press, Vineyard Gazette, Edie Blake, who took wonderful pictures. She was like the staff photographer for the paper. But mine was the book that prevailed and got mass market distribution, and the, the, that was the big money I made from Jaws, was the royalties from the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. I mean, I, know the, I was hired you know, at Writers Guild scale to do a dialogue polish for, sure. for one week, which turned into you know, 11 weeks, so that was okay, or 15 weeks. And I was hired as an actor, and I had a Right. Like an okay price for three, four weeks on the movie as an actor. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I want to talk about how that dialogue polish became, uh, you know, this eleven-week stay on on the vineyard with uh, during production. But uh, before we get to that, I kind of want to open with this bigger picture question, which is, why Jaws? Uh, why do we love this movie? Why has the movie, you know, grabbed the American public in the way that it has, both at the time and to this day? I mean. This is as big a crowd as we've had here in some time, uh, and it's because they love the movie and you guys. Um, wh- what are your ideas on this, uh, Carl, and then Paul? Why do you guys think that Jaws has has kind of jumped off this way? Well, there's you know a lot of, I mean, you can talk about the zeitgeist, the time, how how you know ev- everything was kind of right, uh, but the the truth is, you, you just you know you with mega hits, you just don't know, you know. Easy Rider was going to be a kind of a Roger Corman type, you know, biker movie. The the Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper had some history doing biker movies, and you know, for Corman, so it seemed like a natural. And because they filmed it with a personal vision and all the, the and and you you don't know when something will catch fire like that. I mean, if we knew, we'd do it all the time, uh, but you don't. Uh, it was you know, it was a good property. It was a, a young director working at the top of his form before anybody knew how good he really was. It was a great collaboration. We had a uh, you know, terrific ongoing relationship. We were friends before the movie even started. Uh, it, it, uh, it didn't hurt that a, a great white bit somebody in San Diego the, sec- <laughs> the, the first week of release of the movie. You know. didn't, didn't hurt the movie. Huh? <laughs> Exactly. You know, so there, there was all these this weird, you know, this this pent up anxiety about sharks that nobody had ever exploited, except you know Peter Benchley in his book, and there had been a very successful documentary a couple of years earlier called Blue Water White Death, which surprised everybody by the intensity of it. So it was you know uh, like World War One, a bunch of things were in the <laughs> were in the right place at the right time, and and. Uh, the world, the world of movies, you know, changed after that. You know, yeah, but to that you can only, and I'll, I'll, you can only say you can speculate, of course, and there's lots of that. But I basically, you know, who knew? Of course. 
I mean, I would imagine, especially, in, and again, this is something I want to get to, but being in the thick of it for, you know, those three months uh, in Massachusetts uh, with everything going wrong, there's no way you guys could have foreseen everything's going to go right with this. Uh, no, every, you know, because so much went wrong and it was such a struggle. And the picture was over budget and over schedule. And everybody was just trying to get finished. It was like, you know, who do I have to fuck to get off the island? <laughs> uh, you know, the people were away from their wives and loved ones for way too long. It was supposed to be a two, you know, ten, you know, nine, ten week location shoot turned into thirty weeks. Uh, and for the people on the island, the, the the, the you know the shark the shark wranglers and the camera crew you know the essentials those guys didn't get off the island for months and months and months so there's cabin fever and, and uh, all, all kinds kinds of things insane well we'll get into the nuts and bolts of sure. it uh, Paul what's your take on this film and why it's endured I, I think that uh, I, I was just saying this to my friend uh, Julie backstage that that movie for me is the is the pinnacle of that era of um, movies that were made for grown-ups. Like, fun movies that were still smart and seemed like it was hap- stuff was happening to real people. And I think that, to me, is why it endures, because it's a combination of the, uh, the, the vision of the film, the performances, uh, the things that people are saying, and the way they are saying them to each other, that feels... Uh, it gives it a, a, a real drama that a lot of you know, blockbuster stuff that would happen after that just seems like, well, this just seems fake. You know, like I don't, I'm not really that invested in it. This is just a movie, and especially now with uh, CGI being so prevalent, and you know, it's just like you're conscious of the the filmmakers wanting to just bludgeon you with effects, and it's like, guys, I just I would like there to be a story too, you know. But um, and it's also it's very uh, tidy and compact, as you say. There's nothing wasted, and it's like. It's uh, it, it's really quite a ride, and, and I think in a, in a very um, uh, in a very sophisticated way. Yeah, that naturalism is that's a good point. And I was thinking about that, and I actually rewatched it this morning and watched some of the uh, documentaries that are on the Blu-ray and stuff. Um, and there's this 1974 British piece, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, that's on the Blu-ray. In there's an interview with Spielberg in it, and he talks about how you know it's very important to him that these are human characters. Um, Carl, let's go back a little bit and talk about the script that you were given uh, when you were you were hired as an actor first. That's, is that correct? Yes. Uh, and then you were kind of roped into, well, you're going to be on the island. Why don't you Why don't you write some too? <laughs> um, what was the state of the script when you got your hands in it? That was this was the big question I had looking through reading through uh, the Jaws log. That I I want to know more about that. Uh, the there was a serviceable adaptation of the novel by a writer named Howard Sackler who was not an untalented screenwriter. He wrote Grey Lady Down and The Great White Hope on Broadway and he was a Navy guy. He was the one who found the, uh, who decided to put the Indianapolis incident into the script. Um, and, how, and he was a good writer but it was a, you know, kind of a conventional, I don't think his his heart was in it the way it was in uh, Great White Hope, for example, which was about a big theme. For him, I think it was a, you know, a payday job, you know, a writer for hire, and he did, you know, he did a serviceable job. But the characters were kind of cardboard, and I can tell you that the suggested casting that nobody raised an eyebrow at because that was the right cast for that script 
was, you know, Charlton Heston as Quint, Jan Michael Vincent as Hooper. <laughs> and I don't know who for, for the police chief, you know, Charles Durning. I don't you know. <laughs> uh, they, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, you know, the, the, the characters didn't jump off the page. They were kind of cardboard, you know, the hero oceanographer who... Who diddles the police chief's wife? That was still in the you know that that love affair. Is that was in the book there. as well? Oh yes, yeah. yeah, there's 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 a lot in the book that that I think very wisely did not make it to the screen. <laughs> um, but there, there, there's a whole mafia subplot yeah, with yeah, yeah. with real estate Larry Vaughn and, and yeah. the mayor yeah. A, yeah. is in debt to the mafia on a, for a real estate development that's going south. Um, <laughs> and so there, there was you know like a lot of crap in there, <laughs> and. Our job was, was uh, and, and the note that I sent to Stephen on, the, you know, I did a little memo on the screenplay, and I, I said two prescient things, uh, you know, one was like really wrong and one was really right. The right thing I said, I, I actually have a little piece of paper from 1974 where I say, if we do our jobs right, people will feel about going in the ocean the way they felt about taking a shower after Psycho. And, and of course, for the last 35 years, whenever I meet somebody, and they oh, you wrote Jaws. You know, I couldn't go in the ocean. And I go, yeah, I know, I know, you couldn't. You know. And, and it, I, actually, I'm not dismissive because it's a sincere reaction from people who were moved by the movie. Um, the other thing that I said was, geez, do we have to start off with the kids having sex and then the girl getting eaten? Because that's like so, you know, cheesy horror film. You know, the penalty for teenage sex is death. <laughs> Which we know not to be true because all teenagers grow up and have a lot of sex and then become parents. They don't all die horrible deaths. So, and and I, I, I thought that was, you know, I don't know. But when, and I, I probably would have, you know, argued to change that Except as the situation developed and we realized we had to show the monster off camera, we couldn't show the shark, well, having Chrissy killed the way she is killed, which is one of the most startling and wonderful deaths in, in movies, um, uh, that became not only the, you know, the, a necessary choice, but Stephen executed it perfectly, and it's, you know, it, it sets the tone. You realize that you're in for an exceptional movie at that point. Up until that point, okay, the shark is going through the thing, and there's a bunch of kids on the beach, you know, summer movie, that's more popcorn. And then, yeah, you know, and we're off and running. Yeah, you have to sort of brace yourself. You're taken aback by that, and you know, you're kind of waiting for that kind of thing. Well, I mean, now everybody's seen the film a hundred times, but you can imagine audiences who had never seen a movie begin like that. That was not a conventional yeah. opening for a film in, in 1974. Uh, so it, it, uh, it shocked the conscience of the audience. Do you, Paul, do you remember first seeing the film? Oh yeah, I was, I was a kid. I was, I was a little kid. And uh, our, our parents <laughs> took us to see all kinds of movies we absolutely should not have been seeing. But I guess we, had, I guess we were quiet enough that we weren't disturbing anyone else. But I, I think I saw The Poseidon Adventure in the theater. I think I saw The Towering Inferno. All those Irwin Allen disaster movies. But, um, but yeah, I remember vividly my dad taking me and my little brother to see Jaws. 
Um, and it might have been a it might have been a re-release, like maybe a couple years after the after it was first in theaters, because my little brother was there and it was too intense for him, and so they had to go to see a movie next door, and I sat there by myself and watched this movie. <laughs> And I and I loved it, and uh, I had I had already read the book, and had, and had I'm sure very little understanding of it uh, at the time. But uh, um, yeah, I absolutely was captivated by it. I was uh, it's it's it it was horrifying, but uh, just so compelling. Just the idea of it was so compelling, and what was happening. And um, yeah, I, I vividly remember being in that theater and watching that movie. Um, and, and that compelling aspect and that horrifying aspect, I mean, I feel like that's what the film does so well, not having read the book, but being kind of aware of the book and the previous drafts, that it feels like the film that we are left with, and it seems like it's the film that you put together, sometimes through sheer will on Martha's Vineyard, Carl, um, <laughs> is just this very stripped-down version. Um, was that part of the early conversation with Spielberg? No, it was... It was uh, we were really... You know, when we started shooting, the choice of was Hooper going to have an affair with Ellen Brody, that was still, you know, an option. Because we said, you know, we were thinking, you know, dramatically, well... It would add to the tension on the boat if he's had this. If they, he has this secret, you know, that he thing, and then depending on him to save each other's lives, you know, it's it's like you know, you, it's like those movies where the mountaineer finds out, you know, his companion mountaineer has done something horrible, and then the companion slips, and they're like this, you know, and you wonder is he going to let him go because he did, you know, so so it, dramatically it, it was uh, it was, it, and then of course as we worked with the actors and I was writing four specific actors which is a wonderful luxury for a writer because mm-hmm. you actually hear the cadences you hear the, how the performer reads the lines and you go okay you write to those strengths it just became obvious that you know Lorraine Gary and Roy Scheider were too nice a couple and Dreyfus was too much of a nebbish he wasn't the Jan Michael Vincent you know <laughs> invincible the Greek god of an oceanographer he was you know, kind of a schlubby kid uh, he, he was Duddy Kravitz <laughs> Duddy Kravitz in a wetsuit uh, for those of you who don't know uh, uh, Dreyfus's breakout performances in movies was a Canadian film directed by Ted Kotcheff called The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz and uh, he played uh, his character Duddy Kravitz who was a, a hustler in the Jewish community in Montreal who's making a movie about a mar- bar mitzvah you know bar mitzvah <laughs> film for a family and what happens. And that had just preceded that, the casting yes, of yes. Jaws, right? Like that yes. was, he had just broken through with yeah, that. Yeah, he was, he was out promoting the movie. He had turned Jaws down, mm-hmm. Dreyfus had. And uh, we were, this was two weeks before we started the movie. We didn't have Quint and we didn't have Cooper. <laughs> so it was a, a bit of a scramble. Uh, and uh, Stephen told me that Richard had turned the part down, and I knew Dreyfus from L.A. and from improvisational theater, and I, I called my wife, who was at home, around the corner. We were living on Gardner Street in those days, right next, you know, just, just up the street. I said, you know, where, where's Ricky? You know, do you know where he is? And she said, let me get on it, because she was one of these, like, executive assistants and tour managers, like, who she was a, really knew the business. She called me back. He's in New York promoting Duty Kravitz. In New York, well, shit, we're in Boston. You know, that's, 
continue to tell him we get get his ass up here, you know. And, and uh, because so he came up and he walked in the door and he was wearing those glasses and he had a, he had a scruffy beard and he was wearing a knit, you know, blue wool watch cap. And Stephen and I looked at us at each other and we looked at the Richard and we said. Don't change a thing. <laughs> you got to do this. And he said, "I don't know." And and we said, "No, we're putting humor in it, and it's you know it's going to work." And the styrofoam cup joke <laughs> happened in the hotel room while we were while we were discussing. You know, the the, the uh, uh, room service at the Holiday Inn in Boston, where we were headquartered, uh, uh, doing the casting. Room service was like styrofoam. Because uh, it was a Holiday Inn, it wasn't the <laughs> wasn't the Copley Plaza. Uh, so so uh, we, somebody popped a styrofoam cup, and I said, "Gee, that's like those, you know, those tough guys who crush a beer can. You know, it'd be funny." And Stephen said, "Yeah, yeah, put that in the script." And then we turned to Richard. Says, "Is that the kind of humor we're going to be doing in the script?" So he said, oh, "Okay." <laughs> Can I, do you do you know what his what his hesitance was to to jump in? He well you know he he was a, a serious actor. Um, uh, he had made you know, a good reputation for himself in television, um, and he was starting to work. And Duty Kravitz was a serious movie, um, and he you know the the script that was circulated was this kind of cardboard summer popcorn movie. And uh, Richard's famous line was, "This is a movie I'd rather see than be in." Uh, and and he he was he and Scheider had you know had their reservations and doubts right up until that first paid preview, when they were mobbed on the sidewalk right after, and they said, "Well, I guess we I guess this was a good choice after all." <laughs> Did, uh, tell me about you know the the tenor because you were living you were all kind of <clears throat> hungered in this house right well on, Stephen on and I video. shared a house the the, the company the Universal had uh, Stephen wisely under ha- having done one picture on location uh, just before that Sugarland Express um, he realized that, that you know a lot of, a lot of wasted time for the director on location is, you know, you're living in a hotel, you got to, you know, where are you going to eat every night? Do you want to eat in the hotel? Do you want to go out of the hotel? You got to get a driver if you're going to go out of the hotel. And it's a big deal. So he prevailed on the producers. He said, you know, uh, why don't you rent, rent me a house with a housekeeper? You know, I'm the director. It's a, you know, it's the kind of a perk a director gets. Um, and they said, they said, okay. Uh, so he had a, a nice summer rental house that the studio had rented, and it had like four bedrooms. So there was an assistant, Rick Fields, who was Verna Fields' son, who was an apprentice editor, but was mostly Stephen's personal assistant. He would walk, walk Stephen's dog. Stephen's dog was, in, was on location and in the movie, Elmer, um, the, the, the Cocker Spaniel. That's Stephen's personal dog. Uh, um, so so uh, Rick was, you know, would do the laundry and, and walk the dog and, and you know, Make sure there was, you know, snacks, and the um, and we had a housekeeper who was unequaled. She was a the words domestic goddess apply. She was a middle-aged woman who was like uh, could teach any aspect 
of home economics and husbandry. She raised, I mean, she could birth a calf. She could go scallop fishing, drag fishing with her husband. She could make clothes out of leather. She could make, she could make leather jackets on a sewing machine. And she cooked so well that every summer a millionaire, billionaire, like the head of Thomas Watson of IBM, uh, Walter Cronkite, the head of... Uh, um, uh, some other mega corporation who was summering on the vineyard, they would try to hire her away and say, you know, come cook for my family, come to my estate here. And she was an islander. She was a vineyarder. She had three sons who lived and worked on the island. One of them was named Porky. <laughs> Por- Porky Francis. Her name was Adele Francis. And she was just a fucking genius, and she just would whip up lemon meringue pies for dinner, and uh, you know we'd have a great home, you know, great dinner by this fabulous cook. And she never left the island, and, and you know she would make breakfast, and on, on the weekend she would leave out, you know, she'd make a cold something that we could heat, you know, uh, and it was it was kind of idyllic, you know, and and if I, if I wasn't working on the set that day, I'd be you know alone in the house. I, I they prepped a room for me, so I lived, I lived with Stephen, so if we had an idea like in the middle of the night, we'd go, hey, I just thought of something, you know, <laughs> or vice versa, you know, and, and I, I set up a little desk in a writing corner in one room of the living room, and if I wasn't on the set, I was back in the house typing, and then everybody would get in at the end of the day, we'd meet over at Daly's, you know, I'd get the call that the company was returning from whatever location or set they were on, we'd all meet at Daly's, look at the Daly's, have dinner, go back to the house for dinner, talk about what was left to shoot, what, what we had accomplished up through then, what the changes were. If there was pages to be read, we'd read the pages together. If they were approved, they'd go to the office to be mimeographed and distributed the next day. It was, uh, it was a, a, a not, not a, a great way to make a movie by, by common standards, but given that that was the way we were making the movie. It was kind of the best of, uh, in my rosy memory, it was a, you know, the best of all possible worlds, best collaboration I've ever had. It's, I mean, it seems to hear this now, you know, movies, they take so long. And pre-production, and, you know, the script is locked, and, but changes are made for actors and changes along the way. But it feels like you were writing pages that would be shot Within 12 hours. Yep. That way you don't get rewritten. (laughs) (laughs) There must have been times, though, that, you know, you and and Spielberg and the people in this room uh, getting calls from Fields, who was looking at the Daily, saying, this isn't going to work. You know, were there those fears, or did you just have to power through? We we just powered through. You know, basically it was, you know, trust us, this will work. (laughs) <laughs> and and Dick Zanuck was very he's a old very old school producer. I mean, he came up in the studio system. His father invented the studio system. Him and Daryl Zanuck and Irving Thalberg are responsible for the studio system. They they figured out how to do it before anybody else. Anyway, so Dick was a traditionalist, and he was worried that the page count was going up because I'd be writing scenes and they'd be a little longer than they were in the script. And budgeting is based on page count in studio <laughs> films. Uh, and I, Stephen and I, who had the whole movie in our heads, we were the only ones who had the whole movie in our heads, would say, no, no, yes, we're adding pages here, but we're cutting pages elsewhere. You, you haven't even seen the cuts yet because we haven't figured out precisely what's coming out. But <laughs> trust us, there will be, the page count will be the same at the end of the movie as it was you know, at the beginning. 
And, and so Dick Zanuck is reading pages one evening, and, and he, he's clucky, he's tutting, you know. And then he puts his hand into the script, and he comes up, and he goes, Carl. <laughs> A speech had, got, had gotten longer. <laughs> Somebody whose speech was this long was this long. <laughs> and that was his like shorthand for the script is getting too long, is Carl. <laughs> that's a block of text. You know, that's, a, that's not an eighth of a page. That's a quarter of it. That's you know, a half a page. You know? I, you'd better adjust. And you know, we make defenses and, and, and argue that this was for the best. And nobody could actually talk us out of stuff because nobody else knew. Verna, Verna, who won an Academy Award for her work, she saw how it was going, and we relied on her editorial narrative sense. To, and she would say, well, where are you going to go with this? And how is this going to pay off? And more terrifying, well, we already shot that. <laughs> so how is, how is this page going to fit with this? Because this scene comes before this scene, which we've already shot, so you'd better make some reference or some preparation. So it was, uh, it was great having the editor present and at dinner yeah. half the time and the producers. Uh, and we, we were a little, you know, circled the wagons and tried, made, tried, tried just... We're making the best movie we could at the at the time under the circumstances. It, it seems to me that that's the uh, uh, the the very definition of a collaborative process. That especially when things are going bad, that uh, or not going the way you intended them to go, or had hoped that they were going to go, that you have to be uh, helping each other out to maintain the idea that we know we're making a good thing and this is all going to work out somehow. Yes, we're all professionals here. We know what we should be doing. You know, we're doing it as best we can and we're, we are, you know, keeping the larger picture in mind. We're not indulging our egos because if we were indulging our egos, I never would have written my character out of the, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you just uh, you, you do. now you, you work in, in comedy and, and perform. Have you worked in an ensemble company like an improvisational? Yes. Company? Okay, yes, it's yes. like groundlings, one of those. Okay, so you know that on, on one of those nights when you know it's not working that well, mm-hmm. and you have an audience of people who are not embracing you, <laughs> to, to put it kindly, they're you know they. They're looking and I say, well, we, you know, if we, if we leave now, we can get on freeway before the rush. <laughs> you know, and, and you realize that you've got to, I mean, there's, there's only two solutions. You rush through this show, you just fucking get through with it so you can put it behind you and go on and not have to look at anybody in the audience ever again. Or, or you, you know, concentrate really hard on the job that's done. You, you shut out all extraneous bullshit and you really just try to do the work yeah. You and the other actors as best you can, and if they laugh, fine. If they don't laugh, fuck them. But <laughs> but you you're you're doing it as best you can, which is essentially what they paid to see. So if if they're not appreciating it, that's that's their fault. You're not fucking up. You're yeah. doing it as, as good as you can. And realizing that you're not alone. You yeah. Know, that it's not it's not all down to me, and it's not and it's not about me. We're doing this thing together, yep. and it's about a larger uh, picture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
yeah, it seems, Carl, you'd be, you know, based on your earlier experiences in comedy, you'd be predisposed to this sort of collaboration and the sort of trust among the collaborators. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I long ago found out that the rules of improvisation are essentially the rules of life. And if you can do one conscientiously and well, you're abs- your chances are you're going to lead a... a a mind, at least a mindful life, you know, and it's uh, it's and and it, they're the rules of improvisation are essentially uh, rules for for cooperation and collaboration and the submersion of the individual ego for the good of the collective creative experience. If if I was writing it as a textbook, that's the same. <laughs> I would say. Uh, let's take a minute and talk about some of those early experiences. Um, the committee is particularly interesting. Oh, I thought me. you were going to ask him about his. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to it. Sure. <laughs> There's plenty of time. Um, How did you lose your virginity? <laughs> Awkwardly. <laughs> is there anybody for whom it went smoothly and well? <laughs> oh. Oh, I, you know, this. Oh, that was a, that was a good thing. I think I'll do that more. <laughs> um, tell me, if you would, a little bit about um, the committee. You know, we. I don't think we've had anyone here who has been a part of that, and that's sort of a seminal, uh, groundbreaking yep. comedy troupe. Yep. Uh, so, t- tell the folks what it is and about your involvement and what you took from it. After the origins of improvisational theater, <clears throat> with the. Uh, Three companies essentially based in Chicago, Playwrights Theater, the Compass Theater, and Second City back in the late 50s and early 60s and the pioneering work of a woman named Viola Spolin who wrote a book called Improvisation for the Theater. Uh, It became obvious that a certain style of improvisation could be commercially successful in a performance setting. It was not just an exercise for uh, underprivileged kids. It wasn't a uh, federal theater project, you know, kind of a thing. It was actually going to work. And so uh, Second City had emerged as the uh, most commercially successful of the early companies. And, you know, why not? It had Mike Nichols, Elaine May, Shelley Berman, Severin Darden, Del Close... Uh, these were the first, imp- you know, improvisers. So, and and it worked very well for several years. It was it was a new, there was a New York company. There was a company that traded places with the establishment in London, and the establishment came to New York. And anyway, uh, a director in uh, Second City and an actress in Second City felt that they could do it better. They could they could you know split off. They had an idea for a more socially and politically responsible theater. The Second City was was very good on social comedy and not at all good on politics. They, they, they didn't have... They stayed away from politics, essentially. And we were... Uh, the founders of the committee were very interested in political satire. So they basically got a collection of tapes of performances, and they went to San Francisco and had backers auditions and, you know, lived in a hotel and put dimes in pay phones to raise money. They put together enough of an investment to find a uh, old bocce ball court in North Beach and open it and get a liquor license and opened a 300-seat cabaret and hired some Second City veterans and a folk singer named, uh, uh, an actor named Hamilton Camp, Bobby Camp in those days, uh, and my, my ex-roommate, a guy named Larry Hankin, who's 
can be seen on Breaking Bad this uh, season, I think. Uh, still working. And, and uh, they, they went to San Francisco, and in April of 1960, they started rehearsing and, and developing and rebuilding the theater, contract with contractors. And in April of 63, not long after Second City had opened, they opened, and the San Francisco was the perfect venue. You had the entire student population of Berkeley. You had all the Marin, West Marin yuppies, and uh, the city had not had yet the overwhelmingly gay population, but it had, an, it had an overwhelmingly bohemian population. So everything that the theater stood for was attractive to San Franciscans, and this show was a big hit. And I joined them as a stage manager doing lights and sound. And then as... In the, in the character of stage manager, I <laughs> wandered on stage into, in a couple of sketches and got laughs, and subsequently joined the company as an actor in 66. And then I started working. And I must say, uh, and because performance art is ephemeral, you know, without a filmed record of it, uh, you, you don't know what people were really doing. And there are, there are some films of the committee, there's a YouTube clips of our of a film that we shot here on Sunset Boulevard called A Session with the Committee. Um, and in our political work and in our improvisational work, I think we did it as best as it's ever been done. Uh, and not to take away from Second City, but we were doing it as, as well or better. And, and we did it very well. And then we opened a Los Angeles company. I came to L.A. with the company, you know, completely grounded as an improvisational actor and, you know, happy and confident. We were working, we were doing... In those days, it wasn't like Equity Waiver Theater. We were an actor's equity company who did uh, nine, uh, eight, eight shows a week, uh, nine, uh, six nights a week, two shows a night, six nights a week, so ten, and three shows on Saturday night. <laughs> and and in all summer long, sold out. I mean, it was, and it was a great time. And... So there I was, and I, then all of us were starting to get acting jobs, you know, on sitcoms and in movies, you know, getting starting to get picked up. Uh, I got hired by Robert Altman to be in the movie of Mash. Uh, some of the other actors got work. We all were working, starting to work as in sitcoms, and uh, uh, then I got the Smothers Brothers came to see the show, and they they had gotten their they were their show was in the top ten as a variety comedy musical hour and they were they had inherited the show from their old from their first two season producers and they wanted to make it more of a political statement so they were looking for young hip writers without who, who weren't jaded by writing, you know, Colgate comedy hours and Bob Hope shows and, you know, those kind of variety Red Skelton. So they hired a bunch of us and we all got our Writers Guild cards on the same season. It was me, Steve Martin, a guy named Bob Einstein, you know, you know, um, uh, Rob Reiner, uh, uh, Lorenzo Music, who created Newhart and, and uh, uh, Rhoda, uh, and uh, uh, John Hartford, who was a Nashville singer-songwriter who was also uh, contributed. And then there were a couple other guys, and then there's one old radio writer who the network insisted we have. <laughs> I want to I stop you there for one second, because I, I have a question about uh, performance and writing. Um, not being a performer, it's something 
I'm often curious about, and you guys are both performers and writers, uh, all of that improvisation, how does that inform storytelling? How does it inform joke formation? How does it inform the kind of writing that you guys have done after that? Well, I, I think it could certainly uh, get you there um, faster. You know, it, 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 the, 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 <laughs> the, the thing about improvisation is that you better come up with something. So and it's and and the audience will be somewhat forgiving because everyone's on the same page that this is all happening right in front of us. We understand that you know. So sometimes a joke that if you wrote it down, you know, and rehearsed it and performed, it, people would say, "Well, that's not that funny." But, um, but it does it does get you at least into a headspace where you can. Um, I personally, for me, I, th I think that you can uh, you can better uh, uh, bring conversations to life. You can see both sides of a uh, of, of a scene um, and and get to that maybe a little bit faster than you would um, if if you didn't have that experience. And when you're improvising, I mean, you're, you, again, you're working in the moment, and you're if you have there are people who are wonderful improvisers who aren't particularly you know fun to watch as performers because they're not performers; they're improvisers. And, but if you're a performer and an improviser, and if you have a sense of, you know, what the audience is going to like, you know, how, you, how can you please the audience and you know fulfill the obligations of the of the improvisation, um, you develop a a sense of what works. You go, well, in this situation, you know, like in the script, uh, gee, I've I've improvised scenes where. Though that objective for the actor or that secret or that relationship has I've explored that I mean I actually know that if this character in the script says this line kind of in this way and I pray the actor understands that um, it's gonna it's going to work or you know and you 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 know you're not right all the time because you can never predict an audience a hundred percent but you have a much better chance of writing a line that will be successful if performed correctly, if read, if read verbatim. You know, if the actor does his or her job and just does the dialogue, it's going to work. You know, uh, and and, it, and and you know that sometimes uh, that leads to unpleasant arguments. I did a movie called Caveman, which I wrote and directed, and I had old old school producers. And we were arguing about some laugh, whether the editing should be longer or shorter, or a different, you know, use a different take. And I, I lost it. I said, look, you know, I have, I've been performing at that time. You know, I've been performing comedy for 20 years. I've written routines for every important comic of this generation. I wrote for Lily Tomlin. I wrote for Robin Williams. I wrote for the Smothers Brothers. I wrote for Flip Wilson. I wrote a film with Richard Pryor. Trust me that I know that this is the way to do the thing. You know, I you know I stake my professional reputation on you know it's better my way. God damn it. And Larry Terman, the producer, Larry, I produced the graduate Terman. Uh, had the the weasel producer's perfect comeback. He said, Carl. I understand you're unhappy with the way we just, you know, recut that moment. But the, I was unhappy with the way you cut that moment. And if it's a choice of me being unhappy or you being unhappy, I'd rather you were unhappy. 
<laughs> well, you know, when you're faced with that kind of logic, you go, well, okay. You know. <laughs> but at least, you know, fucking give, give me, you know, the courtesy, if you possibly can, of previewing it in front of a paying audience in both versions. Let's, I mean, if they laugh as hard at your version, then... And, ah, thank God, the audience <laughs> laughed much harder at my version. So, uh, you know, I, I, I won that one. But There's always that, that, that crazy thing where the, the people that have the money are, are saying, you are great, we need to have you do this thing, because nobody is better than you, you're so good. And then you get hired, you start doing the thing, and they're like, ah, this isn't that good. <laughs> Here's what I think would be good. Um, let's talk for a moment about, and I think, I think Paul, you've had this experience as well, about writing for other comics or writing for other comedy shows. Um, you know, we can talk about Smothers Brothers, but you just rattled off a whole list of names, Carl, that you know, we all know and are huge influences in comedy. Um, tell me a little bit about that. You know, how do you write for another comic? How do you have your point of view as well as his or hers? What's the balance? Well, the, 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 presumably you're writing for that comic because for, at, at some point that comic or their agents or managers or producers uh, said, oh, you, you know, you'd be a good fit or you're funny or your jokes are kind of like what their joke is like. So, so, so you're there to begin with, unless you've been hired from Craigslist, <laughs> you're, you're there... You know, you're there because you know somebody thought you should be there. There's a like-mindedness to start in some respect. One hopes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, so and and if you're conscientious, and who among us isn't, uh, <laughs> you're you start as soon as you get the job. As soon as you get the job, you start listening to that comic very carefully to see technically how they're operating. Do they like to hesitate you know, before a punchline? Do they like to talk through the punchline and then pause and let the laugh catch up? You know, what, what is their performance rhythm? You know, so then you, and, that, and that's like writing dialogue for a character. You know, with, in, in the case of writing for Lily Tomlin, uh, she's got her characters. You know, Lily, Lily has a very distinctive personality, and if you know the person, you kind of know how she speaks. And, and that's different, uh, but not that different, from knowing a fictional character that you created for a movie, and if you've done your homework as a writer, you kind of know where that person went to school, what their background is, how they're going to sound, what the actor who's going to play that part should have in their toolbox you know, to, to do the part. So you're, you're writing, you're, you're thinking in, in, in the rhythms of the person, and the, most of the great comics who write their own material, even Richard Pryor, have or had a kind of like a sidekick, usually a lesser comic, sadly, um, you know, to, to spritz with. You know, people you go back and forth with because they're so close to the way you think, you can, you know, you can trust whatever comes out of their mouth you know that's yeah I, I could say that and I would get a laugh and then it becomes part of your act it's a little frustrating for the other comic <laughs> but presumably they're being paid a good retainer 
to to uh, to fulfill that function and to you know in some ways subsume their own career to the career. I mean, um, and there's a comic on the circuit, uh, a wonderfully bitter guy, uh, Paul Mooney, <laughs> who's an angry, angry black man, but was he was Richard Pryor's angry black man for a long time. And some of his lines are the ones that we credit Richard with, you know, as uh, because Richard is the one who made, said them publicly, even though Paul was in the room when the line happened. Which, Look, Paul, which Paul may have mentioned once or twice. This sounds familiar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it, you know, but, but it's but it is true, and it, you know, and and sadly, of course, Paul Mooney is for whatever his gifts as a comedian and writer are. He is, you know, he doesn't have that personable vulnerability, and you know, you don't want to embrace him the way you embraced Richard Pryor. So, we, but that's that's the magic of performers. I mean, we don't know what makes one person beloved and one the other person, you know, just respected. But you write you you write for a character, and in in uh, with so as comedy, you you're working with luck. You're working with comedians. And the depressing experience that I will share with all you writers out there, <laughs> when you've been doing it for a while and you've been like, um, Lorenzo Music and I used to write this mother's monologues. M- much of what they did was from their nightclub act, which was tested and tried and true and had worked for 20 years before they ever got on television. So they knew it worked. But television eats material. And eventually, you know, you don't, if you don't have... 30 hours of act, you don't have you know, two seasons of television, so you got to create. So Lorenzo and I were both from the kind of submissive school of creativity where you submerge yourself in your, your boss's performance. And we could write the brothers as well as they could do themselves. We could write stuff that sounded like it was in their act for 20 years. Uh, and we'd give it to them. And then they would change it. <laughs> <laughs> because they felt it wasn't spontaneous unless they ad-libbed around it. And you're sitting there, you know, groaning in the green room as you're watching the taping, going, oh, fuck, just, you know, if you just say the words the way that I wrote them, you really will get the big laughs. And, I, and I've had that experience. I mean, I, I wrote a bunch of stuff for Dudley Moore ones. And, you know, these are all great talents, and I'm not, you know, I'm not responsible for their success, but I am capable of writing in their voice. Uh, and I wrote this long hunk for Dudley Moore uh, for a benefit performance. And while he was on book, he was killing. And then he would ad lib and kind of wander off topic and be cute and be little lovable Dudley. And it, the audience, he, you could hear the audience, you know, leaving. You know, <laughs> not not literally, but figuratively. You, know, you can hear the audience. Basically, the air goes out of the room. You know, you just go, oh, I got to work harder and get them back. You know, but so there comes a time when you write actors better than they can do themselves, uh, and if they could only, they'd only realize that fact. <laughs> My experience was the complete opposite. I came from stand-up where I was only ever writing for myself, and my first big job when I moved to Los Angeles was writing for uh, Bob Odenkirk and David Cross on Mr. Show with Bob and David on HBO. And very, that, very funny show. Yeah, and that was a thing that I was... Thank you. Um, 
that was right. <laughs> that was a show that I, I I joined on the second season, and so I got to see the first season. I was a fan of it before I got the job, and so I was uh, terribly anxious about it. And um, everything that I wrote that first season, uh, I would give it to them, and then they would change it. But I would never have that feeling of, oh, you guys, you really blew it on this one. I would instantly see, oh, that's better than what I wrote. <laughs> because they had, they had a very specific sensibility. And you're talking about uh, two people who, who had um, you know, a, an overarching sensibility as opposed to a defined dynamic with each other. It was not about, because they were playing different characters all the time. So it was this thing that you were trying to grab at the whole time and like and I would think this time I have nailed it this sounds exactly like a sketch they would do and then they would punch it up and rewrite it and it took me so long to get to the point where I I could hand them a sketch that would they would that would just require just minor revisions you know and was was almost pretty much what I had put on the page but it was a very it was a very frustrating process for me, and what I got out of it was, I don't like writing for other people. <laughs> because if I'm not going to enjoy it at, with, with this situation, I'm never going to enjoy it. Yeah. The, 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 uh, uh, you know, in, in, in defense of, of actors and performers, uh, by the time I got to the point where you know, I was muttering to myself just to say the words, before that point, I had, had, I had written for you know, either... Let, you know, either my, my companions in improvisational theater, I would suggest you know stuff to them, or, or if I was writing on uh, uh, the Odd Couple, you know, Tony Randall and Jack Klugman certainly knew how to perform. So you you would learn from when when they marked up a script, you would look at it and go, oh, you know, then you then you would actually get the benefit of hearing their voice making the corrections, you know, because the whole job is to, to hear their voice and you're to, 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 to write in their, in like they are. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a good critique or a good punch-up, even if they don't explain why particularly they think it would sound better this way, um, if you're looking at it, you go, oh, I, I see. The, 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 it's not a sketch about denial, it's about a sketch about disbelief. So instead of just having the character say no, 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 like in a Monty Python sketch, you know, the actor says no, no, I, I want to believe him, but I don't. And so this, the sketch acquires a, a different life. And I think a lot of times too, with with performers who are playing established characters, it just comes down to a feeling sometimes of I I can see on this page this is a perfectly crafted line, and absolutely it's there's nothing wrong with it except. When I say it, it doesn't feel right. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like the guy that that I've been doing for however many years or whatever. And and if I just change if I change this word slightly, it feels more like the guy to me. And it might it could be an entirely a, a sort of security blanket kind of thing. But sometimes you just you sometimes you need your security blanket. Yeah. Sometimes you need that whoopee. Yeah. <laughs> um, what Paul was describing on Mr. Show made me think of what it. And this is a wild guess, but what it must have felt like uh, to write the jerk with Steve Martin, uh, like there is, yeah, yeah. 
there's a worldview there, right? There's uh, something very specific that this guy does, um, but it, it can also it could feel very broad. You know, El- Elvis, like Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley had the greatest analysis of Steve Martin's humor. Steve tells a story. Uh, Steve was opening for Anne Margaret in Las Vegas early in his career. <laughs> and he was booked for two weeks and fired after the first week. <laughs> but during the first week, Elvis came to see Anne Margaret and came backstage after the show to go to Anne Margaret's restaurant. And he passed Steve Martin. And Steve was in the hall as Elvis and the entourage are careening down the hall. And, and Elvis says, he says, You were the opening comic. And Steve says, yes, I was. And Elvis says, young man, you have a very oblique sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) One great performer recognizes another. But, but, uh, you know, Steve Steve and I had written jokes for the Smothers Brothers. We had had done that together. And uh, uh, I had, uh, I think I had, House sat his house in Aspen once when I was writing a project. I needed a place. I was writing a movie of the week about uh, the sheriff of Aspen, and Steve used to live in Aspen. He was on the road, and I wanted to experience Aspen, so I stayed in his house. So I, you know, stayed in his house, fed his cats. You know, we we had a we we, we knew each other pretty well, and then uh, uh, and he was uh, I'd finished writing Jaws. I had written Which Way Is Up with Richard Pryor. And in the meantime, Steve, and, Steve this, uh, uh, all the fa- uh, Saturday Night Live had gone on in 1975, and so by 1976, Steve was starting really breaking big. I don't think he had hosted that many times, but he was on the way up. So, and he got a two-picture writing and directing deal at Paramount. And he had never written a screenplay. But he was a meticulous writer of his own material and, and, and a very technical writer. As, as odd as the concepts are, he's very serious about writing. Uh, he's very serious in life. I mean, he's not a comedian who lights up the room with spontaneous wit, uh, you, know, com- you know, compulsively. Like... Um, so uh, he, he asked me if, if we could col- we could collaborate. You know, of course. I, I said yes, of course. And uh, we had all had the experience of when we were writing for the Smothers Brothers or, or other. He, Steve had really gone to work for uh, Sonny and Cher. He had written uh, that sh- that variety show. He was a writer on there. He was all, he was his steady job was was writing television variety comedy. And his uh, his weekend job was still was going out and performing. Although he was working in bigger and better venues, he was no longer opening for the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, which was <laughs> uh, uh, they had the same manager, so the manager kept Steve working. Anyway, so we basically uh, I had written a couple of movies, so I knew about movies, which is why I was going to be and and uh, uh, Paramount very wisely. Uh, said, well, you know what? Let's let's do a short, funny film with Steve that will give the distrib- the exhibitors for free. We'll attach it to our next big Paramount picture, and the audiences will see Steve in the movie theater, 
and we don't have the luxury that we had in the old studio days of making him a second banana in three you know mm-hmm. low budget comedy mm-hmm. films, which is what they would do with like a Jack Oakey or somebody. But uh, this was the next best thing they could do was put him in a short film and like send it out with Grease, for example. So everybody who went to see Grease would see Steve. So uh, there was a sketch that Steve had done on, uh, I think, Sonny and Cher uh, called The Absent-Minded Waiter. And uh, we decided to shoot that as a full-fledged theatrical short subject. Uh, I was the director, and it was Steve Martin, Terry Garr, Buck Henry, and music by Marvin Hamlish. (laughs) (laughs) And... Gentlemen in the front row gasped in disbelief. <laughs> Nominated for an Academy Award, and, and we shot and we shot it. And then, while that was being finished, we went went to work to write the movie. And we all had this experience, Steve and I, of looting our acts, our respective acts, for jokes. You know, to to give to other people. You know, and we were kind of stuck. But and, and Steve said, "Well, my manager." who like engineered this deal, he thinks it should be about money because everybody's interested in money. True enough. <laughs> so, okay, we'll make a, write a movie about money. <laughs> so, and we had, a, we had a little office in the writer's building at Paramount Studios. We'd go every day at, you know, 10 o'clock and sit there with fresh paper and IBM Selectric typewriter. And then Steve said, you know, a line that always gets a laugh in my act, always, it's, a, it's like, sure, I can always rely, it's a surefire, surefire. He says, um, I was born a poor black child. <laughs> always works. And I said, you know, uh, just, you know, in the, in the moment, you know, going, well, you know, what if that were True. What 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 would happen when that when that poor black child you know became you you know uh, and that was the genesis of the idea for the jerk is we discovered you know the 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 story structure the film structure that Carl Reiner imposed on it later was it starts as a flashback and then you go back to see but we had every intention of starting the film in that ramshackle delta dwelling somewhere in the deep south with his colorful African-American family uh, where the two brothers were, who played the guitar and sang were Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee who were <laughs> great black folk, you know, black music folk artists. And, uh, and we said, and Steve is, you know, at that age, you know, awkward age where he's like kind of questioning his existence and he hears, he's feeling depressed and his mom says, why don't you come out and sing? He says, I don't like the blues, they make me sad. <laughs> and alone in his room, his little, little, you know, little corner of the shack, he's listening to the radio and he hears, you know, from a hotel or ballroom in, Saint, in, in New Orleans, uh, the music of somebody, you know, Vin, Vincent Lopez and his the Corona Hotel Orchestra, and they go, and the and the song that we heard that said that we sang to each other, not the song that they used in the movie because it cost too much, but it was a bland orchestral, you know, dance band version of da 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 da. Who 
stole my heart away. And we said, that's not black music. <laughs> but Steve, the character, Naven, the character, hears it and goes, yes, that's the music of my people. <laughs> And he recognizes just just as a, and then he realizes that, and then the the great joke, you know, you mean his his wife comes in, I, we have to tell you you're adopted, and he says, you mean I'm going to always be this way, this color, and 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 from that we then then he goes and finds his way in the world and makes the invents the optogram and it becomes. You know, I would imagine realizing that beginning. Uh, finding that jumping off point kind of told you where you could take the story as yep. far as how far you could push it and how strange or uh, yes. surreal it could be. Yeah, it, it, it did. It, it, was, it was slightly more real and satiric. It was subsequently re- rewritten by another comedy writer partner of Steve's called Mike, named Michael Elias. And then Carl Reiner obviously added a tremendous amount to it with, with his expertise. But the version that we wrote was a little darker. Uh, it, it was... It was it's, it's funny, but it was it was <clears throat> it was more our, our, our favorite. It was a situation that never made it into the final version. But he he's uh, he's speculating about you know five thousand dollar call girls. You know that what do they do for that money? And um, meanwhile, he and, and Bernadette uh, are having a hard time fitting into Beverly Hills because you know she's a poor cosmetologist and he's a black sharecropper's son <laughs> and the, the society the Beverly Hills Society isn't accepting them and they're, they're treating them kind of shitty especially this you know with this uh, you know 40 something or 35 year old something you know arbiter of all things proper in Beverly Hills and and, uh, Steve, and Bernadette says well you should find out you know you should get a $5,000 hooker you know a call girl like, just, just book it so he you know and, and he's it of course leads to instability in the marriage later. But in any case, he 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 books the five thousand dollar call girl, and it turns out to be the arbiter of all things social from Beverly Hills, uh. <laughs> who's obviously wearing two hats. <laughs> but, uh, the jerk felt like it feels to me like it hit at a time when you know we were kind of getting this wave of comedies that were had very specific points of view. They were often built around these stand-ups. Uh, Paul, was, this, uh, was The Jerk one of these films that you saw as a youth oh, that had... Oh, absolutely, effect? yeah. It, was, it had a profound effect. I mean, I loved Steve Martin, and, and, uh, and what's amazing about that movie, because it's not a thing that um, everyone's always able to do, to take a comedian's sensibility, especially a comedian whose sensibility is so... Uh, uh, oblique. Um, <laughs> And to and to translate that into a narrative uh, is is a really tall order. And you know, look at something like the Adventures of Ford Fairlane. It didn't, it didn't quite work. Um, but the, the the fact that they were able to, that you guys were able to uh, to take this, you know, what Steve Steve Martin was doing with this sort of anti comedy uh, persona that he had, and make that the equivalent of that in movie form is. Uh, is astounding, and, and certainly when I was a kid, it was just it was just the greatest thing, you know. Like I couldn't believe that 
it you know this it was it was exactly what I wanted it to be you know <laughs> that it was yes this is this did not disappoint I love this guy and then I go see him you know running around as opposed to just listening to it and it's exactly what I wanted it to be yeah, yeah. Uh, what's interesting too I think is that it holds together as a movie like yeah. it, it would have been very easy to make that a series of sketches but it doesn't it has there's a real structure to it yeah. and that's always one of the hardest things. And a real character, you know, who, who behaves like himself and, and is all, you know what I mean? Like, it's always, he always, he does things that that character would do and d- never steps out of that character and, and that's, uh, that's also a tall order, you know, because you would, uh, so I'm, sure, I'm sure often there was, um, you know, you get into a scene and it's like, well, how do we get out of this how would Nathan Johnson, you know, react in this situation so we can move on to the next thing? You know, it can't be uh, it can't be all that simple at times. Yeah, well, as as they say in all the screenwriting classes, you know, character is destiny. The choices that the characters make propel them forward, and, you, and even absurdist choices uh, are, you know, if they're consistent within the internal logic of. The world that you've created, uh, the audience completely buys into it. And with with the jerk, we were very lucky that by the time the movie came out, Steve had hosted Saturday Night Live, you know, five times. The Wild and Crazy Guys, the thing that he did with Aykroyd, was so successful and so so much of a national catchphrase that when we went to preview the film in St. Louis, uh, we were on a mall and. A, there was going to be two screenings, like you know, the seven o'clock screening and the nine o'clock screening, and in between or nine thirty, we had just enough time in between screenings to get a coffee and just you know look at some of the preview cards and you know. Uh, so, but we couldn't do it in the mall because the fans who had turned out were just crazy. I mean, they were just that was when people would show up to Steve Martin concert with the rabbit with the arrow through the head. And, I mean, the, the people would dress in their version of a white suit. It was just it was just it was it was nuts. So we went we went we, we went like off campus. We got the driver and we split to like a to a you know, International House of Pancakes 3 miles down the road where we thought we'd be safe. Uh, so we could at least sit over a pie and coffee and you know. So it, we sat down, we, we were doing it, and then we heard, before we saw, we heard teenage women hyperventilating in, in the kitchen. It was the wait staff. <laughs> and they're going, it's him, it's him, it's him. Steve Martin, Steve Martin, it's him. Well, I'm crazy. Oh, he's, who's serving him? He's in Cindy Station. Oh, hang on. And then you know, a girl would come out you know, trying to be composed. It was, it was sweet. But we realized at that point that Steve Martin mania had overcome the world, or certainly North America. Well, it and was an international house of pancakes. Yes. <laughs> why, why did I not see that? And then he wound up, you know, he, that, that's when he was doing stadium comedy. He was the first comic to play 20, 30,000 seat venues. And uh, it was extraordinary. Uh, let's let's make sure we have time for questions from you guys. If we do that, and while you're doing that, um, I want to go back to Jaws for a moment, Carl, and talk about were there scenes that were either incredibly tough to crack. Uh, granted, you didn't have time to ponder over these things, uh, but were there particularly challenging scenes? And were there? I'm also curious about scenes that you felt like were a particular triumph. 
Uh, generally, you know, the scenes that are tough to crack are the triumphs because if you crack them, you know, they, they, you know guess what? They work. Oh, thank God. Um, but the several challenges. Uh, the, the scene where the grieving mother slaps Roy Scheider and says, you knew there was a shark and you still opened the beaches. And that's a, just a... That's a... That's a speech, uh, and uh, it was an uncertain act, uh, un- uncertainty about the actress. She was, she's, as it turns out, we were very lucky. Uh, Leafiero was the name of the actress. She was very good. She ran the community theater in Martha's Vineyard. She still does. I mean, she's 85 years old, and and she's uh, and uh, and like many of the Islanders, she chose not to pursue a career in acting. She did she did her job in that movie, and then went back to community theater. But that, you know, so we didn't know if she could deliver the scene, you know, with the right dramatic power. And I had to write something that was not maudlin or sentimental, but, you know, pointed up that Brody was, was, had been negligent and derelict in his duty and, and kind of let the air out of the the exuberance of the crowd who just you know think they've got the shark. So there's a lot of stuff to accomplish in that one speech, that one confrontation. Here's here's a big scene going on that I'm acting in, uh, peripherally. There's a big scene going on. There's you took like, that picture. You did a good job. <laughs> there, there was there was uh, you know, plot points that had you know about the bite radius, and this is. This is a shark. It's not the shark. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that had to be accomplished in storytelling logistics in that scene. Then we had to like stop and have this little what amounts to an aria by a secondary player. You know, but it is it is a little performance, little piece of virtuosity. And then we have to get go back into the film and you know cut to and move on. You know. So that was a, that was a challenge, and I, I wrote that. I, it's you know maybe fifty-five, sixty words, and I must have rewritten those hundreds of times over days to be in, the, in the run-up to shooting the scene. The Indianapolis scene uh, is the Sackler had created the first long, long speech for Quint, and. Uh, so we, we always knew that was going to be in there, but we needed the surrounding scene. You know, that, that speech doesn't exist in a vacuum. It comes during a point of male bonding. It comes at a point in the script where you need to come down from the excitement of shark hunting uh, in our little impromptu outline. The whole script was on three pieces of yellow copy paper, scotch taped together with you know, each sequence you know, crossed out or written in, and it was like hanging. It was the, it was the Bible. It was like the, the Dead Sea Scroll for the movie. <laughs> and that scene was always referred to as just before the battle, mother. And it comes from all the World War Two and World War One action films, where the the principals are in the trenches or in the headquarters or in the wherever they are before going over the top the next day and that's where they you know either you know, in badly written movies that's where the guy who's going to get killed says how much he's looking forward to this is his last battle 
As Bill Cosby said, you know, never show pictures of your kids to your fellow soldiers. Because once those pictures come out, the next bullet is going into your head. Uh, but that, that was the, the purpose of that scene, was like a little resting place, regroup, let the learn something about the individual actors, uh, build the bond between them, and you know, justify Quint's irrational hatred of sharks. It was like a number of objectives that had to be accomplished in that five or six pages, and that was a, you know, a huge, a huge challenge. What's What's fascinating to me about that scene uh, is the breadth of tone that goes on in it too. I mean. It's funny, it's sweet, it's, there's terror in it. Uh, it's, it's really masterfully done. Uh, so well done to let, you and everyone. <laughs> let, let lesson to all writers and creators of you know, high-tension stuff, uh, high-tension movies. Um, the more humanity the characters have, the more you or the audience roots for them, fears for them, identifies with them, the more real you make them, the, the more the audience becomes uncertain of the outcome. I mean, if the guy's a little bit clumsy in a small scene, is he going to be able to handle the automatic weapon and the detonator in the big scene later? You know, you have to plan all those things. And uh, it, it really, first of all, and it really helps that you have three good actors who are playing very well together. But you have to you have to give the actors that opportunity to, you know play it down for a little bit. It's not all up here. And you also imagine, uh, without that speech, uh, if that speech did not exist in that film, how would you feel about Quint's death later on? How much would you... You might even be happy that this is happening, but it's a, now, after that speech, you see him in a totally different light than you've seen him up to that point. Yeah, yeah this is not a guy who lets down his guard. Yeah. And this is the yeah. first time we've gotten <laughs> him. Um, I will also add, as far as that... That Mrs. Kinder scene, uh, there's a great story in the Jaws log about what precedes that and that dead shark hanging on the hook. Uh, so if you haven't picked up the book, please pick it up and read that. Uh, to both of you, first off, thanks for being awesome. Um, but I wanted to ask, before you turn in a screenplay, what's your kind of mental checklist that you go through? That it kind of, what, what does it have to do in order to pass muster before you turn it in? Um, there's a just th- off the top of your head <laughs> <laughs> well first of all you have to know that every writer when they finish a piece of work that's the best thing they've ever done in their lives <laughs> and you know objectively you know that that's not so but at the, on subjectively you've just spent you know three weeks or three years or three decades of your life getting it on paper so it, you, you feel very good about that the checklist is uh, you go back, several things you have to do. First of all, you put it in a drawer and don't look at it and don't think about it for a little bit, you know, either a few days or a week, whatever it takes. Then when you do haul it out, also get out the, whatever scrap of paper, whatever napkin, whatever 3x5 index card was your first jottings of the story. What was it that you made you say, okay, I'm going to devote the next part of my life to getting this on paper. Now, you know, sometimes it's a check. You know, it's a commencement check. You know, you're hired to do it. Um, and, and, you know, that's a different sort of motivation. But, but you, even then, you're, you have 
the, the preceding draft, if it's a rewrite job, you've got uh, your conversations, in my case with Richard Pryor, about this Italian film that we were re reworking, uh, Which Way Is Up, was based on a Lena Wertmuller film, you know, very socialist conscious uh, movie. Uh, you go back to your initial impulse and, you know, kind of re-grasp it, redefine re it for yourself. Then sit down with the script and go, okay, that was what I wanted to do. Let's see what I did. And you read through it. And if you're lucky, you'll be going, oh, boy, this is, this is really clever. Oh, look how I satisfied that requirement. And shit, I left that out, but this, was, this is better because it's more complex or it's more efficient or whatever. You know, then you run through the film. And also, at that point, you may see, oh, fuck, I completely forgot in the, in the passion of getting the thing or the rush of getting it done and completed and tying up all the loose ends, you go, you know, wait a second, you know, one of the things that I loved about this script was what it said about how young girls are treated on their first day of school, let's say. What happened to that scene? It's now, it's all about the other guy, it's not about the girl, you know, but fuck, you know, before I send this out, I gotta, you know, like, look at that again. And then, then when you've done those things, you've, you're, what was your original vision? Does it fit your original vision? Where it changes from your original vision are the changes for the better? And does this new thing hang together as cohesively as you had hoped the original vision would hang? And if you can satisfy all those things, then you call your agent and say, it's finished. Mm -hmm. or, or you beg your friends to read it, or you, you, you start sending it out. And it's a bad sign when you send a script out and then you call the people you've sent it to and say, wait a minute, I just did a, did a slightly different draft. I, you know, I fixed something. <laughs> well, shit, you know, don't show it to me if you haven't <laughs> finished it, really. Yeah. And, uh, and there's no point in labeling a film first draft, second draft, fourth draft, tenth draft, because to the reader, it's always the first draft. It's the first time the reader's seen it. I have sort of a parallel question as regards stand-up, Paul, um, and that's, you know, you have this idea, this jumping-off point, like Carl says, uh, and clearly it's you work it over in your mind. How do you know when it's time to present this to the world? Uh, and, you know, that's a much more immediate thing. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, the problem with the, 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 the big drawback to the stand-up writing process is that you don't know if you're done writing it until people laugh at it. And you, the writing really takes place on stage. So I will go on stage with an idea that I want to get out there. I am reasonably sure of the words that I want to use. There will be certain phrases, absolutely, I like this turn of phrase, I'm definitely going to say this that way. But ultimately... It's, it's trial and error, and I will, so, sometimes you get lucky and a thing comes out perfectly, and sometimes uh, you have to work it a bunch of times, and then there are other times where you'll do it a dozen times and it gets the same lack of response, and you're like, well, I guess I was not able to communicate that idea to this group of people, and that will remain funny only to me yeah. inside of my skull, you know? Yeah, eventually, you, have, you, you know, you have to take it out there and... and uh, and sometimes in stand-up, because uh, uh, my peripheral contact with stand-up with working solo, mostly introducing scenes and doing monologues and introducing the show and stuff like that, um, you, you know, you find a way of saying it that then becomes 
in a groove. It becomes mm -hmm. a bit. And the comedian, you can listen to some comedians do a piece 20 years apart. You realize, no, it's pretty much the same words with the same inflections and timing because it's worked all that time. And the good comic, of course, makes it sound fresh and spontaneous every time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, but you, you know, and the hard part is, and uh, uh, do you take notes on stage and like look at your papers and then go back to the microphone like some? Sometimes ex? yes, sometimes no. I don't like to. Yeah. I don't, because then I'll just stare at it. If I have a piece of paper on the stage, I will just stare at it the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I dislike that in, in new comics. I understand the purpose of it, but how hard is it to you know memorize it? <laughs> think, 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 think about it. Things on think it. about it before you go on. Uh, but uh, but then you know when you're on. And you're doing, you know, a run of familiar material, and your your back brain says, "All right, the you know, the bathtub bit. Can I can I get to there from here? You know, is, or am I just going to do an awkward segue and say, here's another thing about bathtubs in the audience? Well, what? How does that work? Thanks both for coming out. Uh, I just wanted to ask Carl, could you talk a little bit more about your involvement with Richard Pryor, your collaborations with him? Yeah. Um, in between the time Jaws was finished and the time it came out, I still had to make a living. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't get paid that much for, for Jaws. So I did uh, four Flip Wilson specials. And Flip Wilson had finished a, a successful three or five year run as one of the kings of variety television. And he wanted to get out of the business and NBC didn't want to let him go. So they paid him a tremendous amount of money to do just four specials over the course of a year. And I was hired to do those. And the first one was produced by Lorne Michaels. And it had uh, Flip's guests were Lily Tomlin, Richard Pryor, um, Peter Sellers, and the musical guest was Martha Reeves, Martha without the Vandellas. That was that was that was a, that was a that was a show. And and, uh, and at that point in his career. Richard had a uh, like a 12 or 14 month manic depressive cycle, and he was uh, doing going through a difficult patch. There was a New Yorker writer who was doing a profile that he shamed, humiliated, and bullied until she ran crying out of the dressing room and never returned. And the New Yorker never did the profile, which is a shame because it would have been great to have a first person, you know. A, a good profile of Richard. And then, and then he got in a fight with a page that I had to break up. I happened to be in the green room, and I hear, boom, what the fuck? <laughs> and I go out, and, I, and it was Richard duking it out with an NBC page, and I got, in, <laughs> I, I, I got in between them, and I pulled Richard off. and uh, you know, So we had a little bit of a bonding experience at that point. And f for that, I was subpoenaed by three separate sets of lawyers, NBC's lawyers, Richard's lawyers, and the insurance company lawyers who insured the production about who, who'd started it. and what. So that was my, I saw Richard at his worst. Now I had seen him on stage, you know, I'd seen him in clubs in San Francisco and I'd seen him work and, you know, had tremendous respect for him, but I knew that he was a troubled guy and he was prone to fits of violence. I mean, he, he Richard did a lot of bad stuff. Um, and so I, I saw that part of him. Uh, and, but he did the work perfectly. You know, he, he delivered. And he did two of the four specials. He did one with the fight, and he did a different one, another one. Um, and there's a great one where he and 
Flip Wilson did dozens on each other where there was a, a competitive pool room scene. You know, one was the, the established pool shark and the other one was the new kid in town. And they, they, they were, and they got off script and just started doing black comic dozens, you know, topping each other. It was great. We couldn't use any of it because it was <laughs> R-rated or worse. And this, was, and this was network television. Flip was, you know, like a, a sweetheart. And then, uh, with the which way is up comes along. I'm I'm at Universal. They're having problems with the script, and uh, uh, I'm interview for the job, and I have a prior relationship. With Pryor, you know, I have a different. Uh, so he remembers me and remembers that I was, you know, I didn't cop out at the, for the lawyers. I, you know, I stood up. I, you know, um, so you know, we got on well. I said, yeah, you know, Carl can do it. And then it became he wanted to have a very active role in the writing of it. And he this was during a the healthy part of his cycle. He was dating Pam Greer, who had him dieting and exercising. He was playing tennis every day. And uh, we went to Barbados, I think. He rented a house in Barbados. Tough, the tough job of a Hollywood writer. <laughs> Took my, my wife and I went to, flew to Barbados with Richard and uh, with Pam Greer. And we had this house. And we would write, we would talk about the movie. You know, we'd, I'd make notes, I'd make tapes, because I really wanted to get Richard's cadences down. Richard you know, speaks a certain way. And that was a very happy collaboration. And my ear for dialogue was was really working at that point, uh, and I was writing Richard, you know, as as well as Richard. And when we had the first table read at Universal, and we had an African American director named Michael Schultz, black and Hispanic cast for the most part, except for some white white villains. And I'm standing in the back, you know, uh, and, you know, watching the read through and everything, and then. Uh, applause at the end and then Richard introduces you know this is the director this is the producer this is the writer and I get this double take from a very diverse <laughs> ethnic cast who are looking at me and everybody said you know a white guy didn't write this shit you know, well, <laughs> this, this that, I was I was hugely complimented by that <laughs> that I had written the black people as, as, as good as they could be done now, and and that was, uh, I'm very proud of that, you know, because I, I wrote in Richard's vernacular, and you can't tell what's from Richard's act, what Richard ad libbed, or what I wrote. You know, all it's all in that movie. Hi. Hi. Um, two quick questions. One, have you seen Sharknado? <laughs> After, after my Twitter feed exploded, <laughs> I taped it, I, or, or I record tape. There's a you know you don't tape movies, anymore. but it sounds better than I DVR'd it. But I, I, I haven't looked at it yet. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You're uh, in for a treat. Huh? I, my agent suggested as a sequel. I, I suggest I approach sci-fi and say Sharkano. <laughs> an earthquake blows up in LA a volcano erupts tapping an underground <laughs> ocean of blind white sharks who've never seen light of day who are catapulted into the population 
shark, Kano. Watch for it. Um, my other question is, when I think about writing a villain, you know, I kind of think about it sometimes from their viewpoint. Did you think about that with Jaws? I know in the other sequels, he has a, it's a mother, it's a baby. There's more sympathy for Jaws. But I wouldn't think you would have thought about it in, in the movie. So I was just wondering how you thought of that when you were writing it. Well, you know, it, it, Benchley's creation, which, which we tried to honor, is that, and the, the, the thing that made that novel special was telling the story from the shark's point of view. And there's a speech in the, in the movie about the shark as a perfect eating machine. It only lives and swims and makes baby sharks and eats. That's what all it does. So we had a villain of with real singularity of purpose and vision. And, you know, this is it's not a complex, self-doubting game of Game of Thrones kind of a minister who's not sure if he's doing the right thing. The shark is, you know, basically. A villain, you know, he's not even a sociopath. I mean, it's a shark. It's 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 almost inanimate in its single-minded pursuit of, you know, in in that way, there's a kind of a generic similarity to zombies. You know, oh, we have to have brains. Why? No, we just have to have them. You know, it's, <laughs> you couldn't do it with livers. You couldn't eat hearts. You couldn't eat lungs. No, it has to be brains. I mean, there's. There's a, there's a routine in there about why zombies like brains, but it's just, they do. I mean, that's, that's the deal. Um, and sharks, you know, swim and eat people. And Peter, you know, to his credit, felt badly about what the subsequent effect was on the world's shark population and how people, you know, enjoyed killing sharks. And he devoted the last 20 years of his life to a foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Preservation of the Oceans, and there's some horrible habits about uh, stripping sharks of their fins and then throwing them back in the water where they you know, die because they can't swim or they get eaten by whole fish who are competitors. And it's, it's uh, um, he, he, uh, he's sorry he created that cliche, but as it turns out, <clears throat> just as radiation and atomic catastrophe that subtext made a generation of filmmakers turn out things like Godzilla and the Japanese horror films and all the American movies with radiation was the big the whether they were low budget pictures where just you know giant crabs and primitive CGI with you know playing. and movies like the on the beach you know which which was a serious view of what happens in the world of Fallout or the morning, that great TV series uh, uh, special called The Morning After um, so, so, so if, never underestimate this the, the public's uh, grasp or uh, in Jungian terms a collective unconscious where there's you know a zeitgeist, it's out there and in the case of Jaws you know Nobody curiously had had capitalized on it before, and then then they started thinking, oh, what else are people afraid of? Spiders, so you had arachnophobia, uh, you know, irrational monsters with machetes, you know, Jason. Uh, you know, then then the creatures came, the Fast and Furious. I am, while we're, while we're sort of um, sort of on that subject, um, I want to just talk for a second before we get to this last question about uh, Mayor Vaughn. 
uh, who's kind of a great, charismatic, sympathetic villain in the film. Um, Paul, I know you're a fan. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you love this character? Well, I I mean, for many reasons, but I've never been uh, this close to anyone who has been that close to that jacket. And I, I just have to ask, was it, was it as glorious in person as it appeared on the screen? It was polyester heaven. It was one of those finds, you know, when the wardrobe... Because all the wardrobe was shopped locally. I mean, nothing was designed and built for the movie. That stuff was all in stores. They bought it. And when the costume person came in with that jacket for Larry, uh, we all went... Wow, <laughs> and and it, it, I mean, I I had some good cheesy outfits. I mean, burgundy pants with white patent leather loafers and matching matching white belt, what we call the full Cleveland. <laughs> um, but you know, that jacket, yes, and and he wore it well too. He Absolutely. He did, he did. Well, it's also it's the it's the perfect thing for him to be wearing when everything falls apart. <laughs> He could not look more like a guy who, who valued money over human life. <laughs> that, that's one of those details that is a, a happy accident in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, you know, when, when at, at the moment when the you know, wardrobe designer comes in and says, what about this for Vaughn? And the director goes, yeah, fine. And then they put him in it and he shows up on the set and everybody says, wow, that's, you know, that's a, what a great piece of wardrobe. <laughs> but... All this, you know, the the subtle things that you can read into it afterwards about it's 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 a guy who likes money more than people. It's it's you know unnecessarily jaunty. It is you know <laughs> it is a, a, nautical, a nautical island motif, uh, you know, worn by a guy who has no interest in boating the water. <laughs> He's probably never, you know, never been near the marina except, you know, to see if the concession stands are paying you know, license fees. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, it's it's a, uh, it's it's perfect on so many levels, and only in in great films of any sort do you appreciate how how many lucky accidents like that add up to the whole experience. You know, Jaws would still be an effective film if you wore a completely different jacket, if you wore a tweed coat. But that's one of those minuscule details that make you go, wow, this, this is special. And, and the other thing is I like is, you know, I've, I've been back to the vineyard, they have Jaws Fests now, uh, and I, I attend sometimes. And uh, all that stuff is still on sale at the Haberdash... What? <laughs> Not that jacket. You could could, could sell a million of those if you could find somebody to to remake them. But uh, that 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 kind of Islander wear. uh, Somebody pointed out in the Yuppie Handbook that you know Yuppie attire hasn't changed in ninety years. Sperry tops, sperry topsiders without socks. Uh, old old khakis, a blue uh, Oxford blue button-down Brooks Brothers shirt, mm-hmm. and you were cool in 1943. You're cool in 2013 with that <laughs> with that same outfit. 
All right, let's get this last question. Um, in one of the documentaries, uh, I think Benchley told Spielberg that the tank in the mouth would never work as an ending to the movie. So I was wondering if that was always the idea or if you guys had different ways to kill the shark at the end, and if so, what were those? No, I think we were pretty committed to, the, to that idea. And, you know, it's interesting. Have you seen the Mythbusters episode where they... <laughs> Where they prove that it it could not blow up like that. <laughs> How again, you know, a tribute to the filmmaker Spielberg, that he decided, you know, he needed that, you know, you had to go out with a bang, that the the villain had to be punished, and uh, what I like about what we did collectively to sell that is there's a lot of foreshadowing. If you watch the film, you'll see uh, a lot of care is given to lashing the tanks in place. Yeah, it fits fingers. Then at a later moment, the tank rolls away and the Hooper gets uh, exercised, gets gets, uh, upset, you're kind of out of proportion to a tank just rolling across the deck. And so the audience subliminally is being prepared and warned that this tank is a big escape. There's a lot of energy stored in this object, and if it's released at the right time under the right circumstances, it might be the key to the problem. You know, so we set we worked hard to set that up over the course of the, the film. So when it does happen and the shark does bite on the tank, um, you're mentally prepared for it, and when it blows up, you just accept it. It, you know, it works because we say it works. Yeah. You know, in, a, in, a, in a less effective movie, uh, you basically say, well, that wouldn't, that wouldn't happen or something. The, I just read a wonderful piece about the physics of giant creatures <laughs> like Pacific Rim. You know, that size thing, the physics of it are impossible. <laughs> it would weigh... 20 million pounds and for an object like a fist like for the thing to throw a punch if you analyze the proportions, the size of the thing and if that punch is moving in real time, that fist is moving at 400 miles an hour which is how fast it would have to move to give the illusion of human you know, human scale action on that macro level Uh, and the legs I mean, legs would have to be supporting 20 million pounds of steel. I mean, it just doesn't work at any level except visually. It's a, it's a great it's a great visual that there could be a thing that big, but they you know it it can't be. It's it's an invention, and 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 but the job of the artist is to make the audience go. Well, it, it could be. You know, it, it, it if 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 it works. Within the context of the reality that you're creating, that there are these creatures, that they do bang about the planet, that they fly and you know they they do what they do. You know, all right, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to forget the fact that if they stepped on a subway tunnel, they would just crush, you know, <laughs> plunge through. They would create potholes wherever they went. And, you know. But you know you. It's all the willing suspension of disbelief, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
Well, and I, and I would add, thank you, I would add, you know, in Jaws, that shark blowing up is an emotional catharsis yes. for us, too. I mean, yes. as much as we're with Quint, as much as we're with Hooper, we are Brody. Yes, and uh, Brody so goes screaming, yeah, goes, yeah, you know, he's, he's yeah. all excited. As a, and, and, then, and Spielberg puts the, the groan of the dying right. dinosaur in. <laughs> it's the same, the, the same dinosaur that died in Duel when the truck went over the, the truck. Yeah. It's the same, same track if you listen. If you listen to Duel and you watch Jaws, you'll hear that, that uh, creature. Before we wrap up, let's talk about uh, very briefly what are you watching uh, on television? What movies have gotten you excited? What's getting you inspired to talk to your friends about these things or to write more of these things? Uh, and Carl, let's start with you. Um, I watch, I, I love the hard action uh, uh, cable network series Breaking Bad, Sons of Anarchy. Uh, I've taped all the killings, I haven't watched them yet. Uh, I enjoy those. I think they're beautifully written. They're beautifully shot. If you watch Breaking Bad, uh, there's not yeah, there's nothing in the frame that's not important to the story. I mean, even if it's like you know flowers growing in the background at the pool in, in the end of season four when they zoom in. You know, <laughs> spoiler alert, by the way. Uh, you know, there's n- nothing that that's you know that that's not necessary. That's great. It's the best day-to-day writing that's going on in popular entertainment anywhere ever, I think. (laughs) So that's that's what I enjoy watching. I also enjoy watching things like Pawn Stars (laughs) and and, and, not Ice Road Truckers, the other one. The truck, uh, trucking, trucking wars, uh, and and <laughs> I, I, I kind of every that. writer we've had on here, Pawn Stars, uh, Duck Dynasty, really? uh, they love it. <laughs> and 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 I'm writing. I'm, I'm just two comedies. I'm writing. Uh, one is about three women of very disparate backgrounds, extremely rich, striving, overextended, yuppie middle class, and poor minority from the projects who uh, wind up with a winning lottery ticket between the three of them that they don't even know who's got the possession of the ticket after it wins so they have to find each other, they have to collaborate, the ticket is taken hostage by various nefarious sources but it all ends happily with a shootout at a children's birthday party And and, and and the other one is a, is a high concept. It's a it's a guy comedy. It's called Four Hours, and it takes its title from the warnings on Viagra. <laughs> and it's a, it's about a guy who is uh, on the eve of uh, or on the on the day of a very important business presentation, which his career and his life turns. Uh, he has been dosed with too much Viagra and has a four-hour erection that he's got to carry through the streets of Manhattan whilst trying to accomplish his corporate goals. It's still in the planning stages. But... We'll, we'll have you back to talk about it. Uh, Paul, what are you watching on TV? What movies have gotten you excited? I've been watching uh, my wife and I have been watching this Danish TV show called Borgen 
um, which is a sort of like the West Wing of Denmark, and uh, it's a terrific show. It's really great. It's and one of the things that's unexpectedly great about it is it's a subtitled show, um, and so at least it seems to be twice an episode there will be a perfectly bleak Danish subtitle uh, paired with uh, an exceptionally bleak Danish image. And so I will take screen caps of these and post them on Instagram with no explanation. Um, but it's, it's a great show. Send me the links. I, <laughs> I want to see that. But it's, it's a terrific show. And I've also been uh, that's rewatching... On, that's on Hulu, right? And it's been playing on... Like, it's, it was here. airing on KCET on public... Te- television here, um, uh, but if it is on Hulu, yes, then definitely seek it out. It's it's a really good show, um, and I've also been rewatching Doctor Who, the uh, the reboot of Doctor Who, um, which is uh, it's been an it's been an interesting experience to watch it. Uh, like some of the stuff was not as good as I remember it being, and then watching it progress as as you can watch it from day to day as opposed to week to week, you can really see the uh, the growth of the show. But it's. Uh, I really like. I, I was a fan of that show when I was a kid, and I was very excited to see that the the production values have caught up with the ideas <laughs> of the show. And yes, it's uh, it's been very enjoyable to to watch that again. Terrific. Uh, well, please give a round of applause to our guest. And pick up a copy of the Jaws Wall online. It's really cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com.